Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Dialogos, a Harker Philosophy Club podcast. I'm Akshay. I'm Sophia. I'm Jack. And I'm Rupert. And as you can see, we're joined with Jack and Rupert, our new Philosophy Club officers this year. So today we'll be talking about God, arguments for God, arguments against God, I guess multiple gods too. And so I guess with that, we'll just jump right in. First thing we should probably talk about is the class common classification of the arguments for God. I suppose I guess the rebuttals against them as well. Um, one of them is maybe the most talked about the ontological arguments, which from my understanding is pretty much just trying to prove God's existence through pure logic and like that he just must exist. And then there's cosmological arguments, which often involve shoot, I forgot how you say this. Cause al God damn it. I cannot pronounce, I keep causality. saying it's casualty. Okay, sorry. <laughs> causality. Causality. Causality and also kind of proving things on kind of evidence observation-based arguments like, you know, something something exists that moves, so why will why has it have to or what's the cause of that? We'll get more into that later. Um a term that's related to that that you might want to know is to call something called infinite regress, which is the idea that essentially something causes something else then something causes that and you have this infinite chain of causation and some people think that's possible some think well it's not so just watch out for that term and then the third probably most common argument is of the theological kind which is just the idea of intelligent design that like we humans are complex and that you know there must have been a designer behind them but we'll get into that more kind of go back to one of the um first arguments for god and i think one of the least talked about uh we have to talk to ibn sina he was a persian polymath i believe who uh wrote about a lot of things he wrote about medicine and metaphysics often in the same volume and often with poetry right alongside it pretty cool guy. He was Islamic and how he wanted to prove God was doing it by defining three separate types of objects, or as he calls them, existence. First, there are um, impossible existence. This is like a four-sided triangle or, you know, um, other things that are blocked from existing by logic, by definition. Second, they have the conditional existence. Those exist because there is a cause to them, like the computer or the mic that I'm talking into. That exists because someone caused it by building it. Uh, And then there's a third type of existent, which is the necessary existent, which Sina thinks, or his Western name is Avankina. He thinks that this uh, necessary existent must be God because of the infinite regress that Jack described, that there has to be a cause. Uh, So there has to be some sort of big, big opening to the universe. And he conceives of that as a being who um, has a will and has proper motivation to want to conceive the universe. And he considers that that being has to be an Islamic God. He influenced Aquinas quite a bit um, because Aquinas was one of the first scholars to read uh, Islamic texts about Aristotle and all that. And he got wind of Sinna's argument. And Aquinas then proposed his own five ways, which were five different proofs for God. One of them was pretty much what Sophia mentioned, which was the um, argument from contingency, which is that 
you know, contingent beings have to exist because of others. There must be a necessary being. That being is God. And then he came up with, that's one of four cosmological arguments that he had. Um, other, some of the others were the argument from motion, which is that everything is in motion and things are only set in motion because other things that hit basically hit them. So there must have been something that was originally moving and that has to be started by God. Then there's the argument from causation, which is pretty much the exact same thing, except you have causes and effects, something affects another event, and that affects and that has been affected by another event. Then someone had to have affected all those events, which is God. And then you have the argument from degrees, which is a bit of a different flavor, in that basically all properties come in sort of degrees and without some sort of universal basis for those and some kind of degree of perfection, those are meaningless. So there has to be a perfect being, and that's God. And then his fifth argument was kind of of a different flavor. It was just the theological argument being that humankind and nature is complex, meaning that there must have been an intelligent creator rather than just random creation. So another justification for God, although that's kind of a loose term, is Pascal's wager. So I think there's this mathematician named Blaine Pascal, and um, he proposed a, a type of wager, not actually a proof of God, although many people kind of interpret it that way. Um, But essentially the way it goes is like, he sets up a couple of possibilities. Uh, You can imagine this is like kind of a table where at the top you have, does God exist? And then at the left you have, do I believe in God? And so essentially the kind of thrust of his argument is that ultimately, even if God does not exist, it would be so much better for us to believe in him just on that off chance. Um, And so if you go through the possibilities, there's like the possibility that God exists and we believe in him in which like we go to heaven, basically, which gives us infinite gain. And if God exists and we don't believe in him, then we'll go to hell and we'll have infinite loss. Comparatively, if God does exist, does not exist and we believe in him or don't believe in him, then we either have a pretty small loss or a pretty small gain in terms of like the amount of time we didn't expend, like doing worship or whatever. And so his point is that like, um, even if the odds are stacked up so that like there's a relatively small chance that God does exist, it is there is such a great benefit that we get from believing in God that it would behoove us not to. And this is kind of different um, from the other justifications that we see used for God, like the ones mentioned before and we'll see mentioned after, which is that it's, it's far more pragmatic and um, closer to game theory than like a formal mathematical proof. Um, or like logical proof for God exists and kind of gives up on, on the idea that God is necessary or that it's like a moral good to believe him, but rather believe in him rather arguing that there is like a narrow self-interest um, in believing in God, just from the kind of personal view of your own pleasure or pain. There are also like problems with this justification because there's no intrinsic motivation. You have to like force yourself to believe in God. It doesn't actually justify a particular God. And because the like logic is so malleable, you could say it justifies like it justifies beliefs in gods that have the exact opposite view of that original God. And so essentially that just justifies atheism because you can never know which God uh, we should actually conform to. And that's just because it, it's just a very simple value calculus and not actually like a proof stemming from uh, like a omnibenevolent or omnipotent God. He also assumes that it is in fact a Christian afterlife that there is heaven and hell. He does not consider the possibility that there might be a God that does not care about this dichotomy or does not care about punishing people. That kind of 
takes us into talking about untraditional arguments about God. That kind of takes us into Spinoza, who he kind of bought a lot of the ontological arguments he took God as given, but he had a pretty unique conception of God that I think is worth mentioning here. He thought he was a monist who thought that all everything is God. Basically, there's one substance, and that is God. And everything is a type of God. Uh, and he kind of gets around like a lot of the um, more problematic arguments about this, like Pascal's wager, than he would if he just defined God as a being. Because if God is, in fact, a substance that can be malleable, then that kind of gets rid of a lot of the counterarguments that we'll be talking about uh, a bit later. Like, it's more like how people use God if God isn't, in fact, a substance. And it also means he's not omnipotent if he's bound to the laws of physics. So it gets rid of some of these things. I'm not exactly sure why Spinoza conceived this God of God as a substance. Um, it doesn't seem that particularly logical, and it doesn't seem in line with a lot of the ontological arguments. But uh, he was a strange man. There was also Anselm and Platinga's ontological arguments for God which um, Anselm was one of the original uh, founders of the ontological way of proving things. Their proofs are kind of summed up as if you can consider um, the greatest possible being, um, which is God, then it's greater to exist in reality than into mind. So God must also exist in reality to be the greatest possible being, which is an interesting way of saying things and it kind of opens itself up to a lot of counter arguments such as um, the greatest conceivable island, which is, well, I can think of this really great island and it has like everything I want. So now it must also exist in reality in order to be that greatest island. And I mean, it's kind of immediately clear that there are holes in, um, in that argument. And Plutinga was a 20th century philosopher who kind of built upon Anselm and tried to cover that up a bit. But um, there, are, there are still big problems with that approach. And so with that, I think we'll segue to talking about some of the arguments against God. Um, and kind of like a, a general thing to view the arguments against God with is that even for the arguments that justify God, they don't usually justify a particular God. Like some justify like an Islamic God or try and justify a Christian God. But in the end, they're mostly talking about some general God that is like omnipotent. So like all powerful, all knowing, all kind um, or omnibenevolent. And so that doesn't actually justify a particular religion. And so you don't really get proofs of things like Christianity or proofs of like Islam or Judaism. Um, those ultimately still kind of boil down to things like personal belief. And so it, a lot of these different arguments will approach it from like a logic, logical standpoint rather than like that of a particular religion. And um, furthermore, about the kind of all good, all powerful, all knowing God that Akshay was talking about, an omni-god, if you will. Um, this kind of, this, the idea of an omni-god has some issues in itself. For example, just the paradox of omnipotence if if God is, you know, all-powerful, can he create a rock that he himself can't lift? If he can, then there's something he can't do, namely lift said rock. 
And if he can't, then there's something he can't do also. So this seems like a paradox and it doesn't seem plausible that he could probably, he could possibly be omnipotent. There's also the idea of can, how can humans have free will, an idea we like to believe we do. And, um, and how can God be omniscient at the same time? If he knows everything that we're going to do, do we truly have a choice in the matter? So you have to sacrifice one of those ideas if you believe in free will and the Christian God or the omni-God, I guess. And then there's the also idea of omnipotence versus omnibenevolence, or can God commit a sin? Because if he can, then he's not truly good. But if he can't, then he's not truly powerful. This is, again, kind of another one, kind of the contradictions. And um, one more probably is kind of less of a, it's less of a, it's more dependent on, I guess, which omni-God you choose to believe in. But the idea of the omnitemporal and omnipresent God, which you might believe in, which is that God exists in all times and also all spaces, which kind of contrasts with kind of the idea that you have a personal connection with God that's specific to your time and location, I suppose. So th- those kind of ideas kind of present issues with the idea of an omni-God altogether. And other really foundational answers um, or arguments against the, existence of, against the existence of God also stem from the contradictions kind of inherent in that like omni perspective um, that we take on God, as Jack mentioned. And I think the best example of those paradoxes is the problem of evil. And so the fundamental question is like, if God exists, if God is all powerful, if God is all knowing and God is, is like the most kind being in the universe, then why does evil of any kind exist? Um, because if God was all powerful, then God would have the ability to remove all evil. Um, if God was all knowing, then God would know where all the evil is and how to eliminate it. Uh, and if God was all kind, then he would have an incentive to remove all evil because it is kind of against uh, his benevolence to do so. And with this problem, it then becomes a question of if that sort of God exists, which a lot of major religions do propose, then why does evil exist in the first place? Um, and it's really a pretty basic answer to the idea of God um, that rests on relatively few premises. The idea that evil exists, the idea that God has all of those like traits. And so the responses to those kind of try and grapple with those elements. So there's the idea of free will, which is essentially trying to say that if humans have free will, which God endowed us with, then some evil would inevitably have to exist in the first place. Because otherwise, if God restricted us from doing that, then we wouldn't actually have free will. Although free will also kind of comes with its own problems, as Jack mentioned earlier. Another argument by uh, Leibniz is that we live in the best possible universe. And because we do, because God exists and thus wills us in the best possible universe, then the amount of evil that exists in the world is the least that we could ever have. Although this is like generally not as persuasive as an example, because there are kind of easy ways to, to imagine a world with less evil than the, the one that exists now. A final argument against the problem of evil is that evil can complement the development of a soul or like, quote unquote, evil builds character. Again, not the strongest counter argument uh, there, there is against it. But yeah, um, in general, like the problem of evil is a longstanding philosophical question relating to God, and it is yet to be solved. Uh, as has like the proof of God. If you're familiar with proofs of God, this is going to be one of the biggest answers that you see. Another answer to the idea of God is the problem of first mover, which um, kind of responds to the idea that God necessarily exists because God must have created all of us. And that answer is, well, if God created all of us, then who created God? 
And so it takes that idea of like, you know, infinitely asking, well, who created this? Who created this? You get up to God, but then you kind of say, well, who created God? So that's like another response to a particular justification. And in general, other than like broad indicts of the idea of a God, like the problem of evil, most of the answers will be in response to particular justifications. Um, now it's time to get into a little bit of um, an edgier territory. I think of these arguments as the kind of converse to Pascal's wager, because there are arguments for why you might want to believe in God, um, but there are also people kind of critiquing these arguments that are uh, why you might want to believe in God and looking at some of the psychology behind it. Because the more reasons people have for believing in God without proving that he actually exists, the less likely that God actually exists. Because humans have an incentive to believe in them. Voltaire kind of sums up this quote with, if there was not a God, man would make him. Um, Quoting roughly, that's not the exact quote. Uh, Another kind of famous philosopher who builds off of this and actually creates a genealogy for God, um, Akshay, you know, was talking about who created God, and Nietzsche's answer is man. Uh, That's why he thinks, with the famous quote, God is dead and we have killed him. We as murderers of murderers, etc. He thinks that God can be created by man and ergo destroyed by man. Uh, And he kind of looks at the divine being as part of people's desire to punish others. He thinks that people have invented God in order to punish the people who they don't like, who are they're envious of, or who uh, belong to a different nation or a different clan. That God is just a means to the end of punishment of saying that we are so great and they are so bad, and that it is necessary in human psychology to have this view. It's it's a soft. It's not a proof that God doesn't exist or like a real problem, but it's a soft kind of dissuasion from believing in God. And I mean, to be fair to Nietzsche, some pretty terrible stuff like, I don't know, crusades and stuff has happened because of in the name of God. So you can kind of see where he's coming with that. One last thing, like a lot of these are kind of dealing with reasons to or to not believe in God, but there's also just the idea of like fideism where there's no, there's no, you can't really use reason to believe in a God. You should just have blind faith and that's okay, which is kind of an interesting take on it, I guess. There are for sure people like Soren Kierkegaard who think that the world is awful and terrible and the only way you're going to get through it is by taking a leap of faith to believe in God and believe that there's something afterwards, which is depressing, uh, but so is Kierkegaard. So. <laughs> All right. Well, that's our podcast. Um, if you like this, then make sure to like and subscribe. Show it to any of your friends. If you have any ideas for new podcasts, you want to reach out and maybe even be a guest on the podcast or want to come to any of our meetings, which will happen during the school year, which is beginning to heat up then email us at harkerphilosophyclub at gmail.com and uh, we'll add you to to our mailing list and you can come see more of our meetings. Have fun.